Bibles, Philippians chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 30. Verses 27 through 30. We are continuing in our series on the book of Philippians titled Joyful. The series is the Christ-like mind, which brings about Christian living. Over the past few weeks, we have seen the Apostle Paul greet the Philippian church as he pins this letter from a Roman prison, and in verses 12 through 18, we saw the Apostle Paul tell them about his sufferings, but not to worry about them because they were advancing the gospel. And last week, we saw the Apostle Paul make that great purpose statement that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So this morning, as we jump into verse 27, the Apostle Paul is going to go from talking about himself and kind of where he's at to now exhorting the church. At Philippi, exhorting is just to urge, to, to plead them to do something. And so verse 27, I'm going to read verse 27 through verse 30. Verse 27, the Bible says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in nothing, terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition. But to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. The title for today's message is Citizens of Heaven. Citizens of Heaven. If you would, let's... Join me in prayer, and then we will dive into the message. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day you've given us, Lord. I thank you for the freedom and the opportunity to worship you and to study your word, to gather with like-minded believers, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would give me clarity of speech and that those that are here, their hearts would be open and there would be no distractions, Lord, that they're ears would listen to your word, Lord, that lives would be transformed and changed, and that we would grow more into the image of Christ through the teaching of your word, Lord. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that does not know you as Savior, I pray that you would do a work in their heart, that they see their need for Christ, that they call upon him for salvation, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would make me small. I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that Jesus would be big. This morning, Lord, Lord, I love you and thank you for all you do in Christ's name. Amen. In verse 27, the Apostle Paul begins this exhortation to the Philippian church, which is going to continue through verse 18 of chapter 2. If you look at the beginning of verse 27, I love the way that the Apostle Paul begins. He says, only. This word only is placed there emphatically. It's as Paul has decided that his faith is to stay and help the Philippians in their progress for the joy and faith like we saw last week. He wants to tell them before he gets there, just one thing, only let your conversation be as becoming or worthy of the gospel of Christ. When we see that word conversation here in the King James, this is not the conversation that we may think of in today's vernacular. It's not, Paul is not speaking about merely their speech, but what Paul is talking about is their conduct, their 
their, their manner of life, not their talk, but their walk. So Paul is saying just one thing, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's even more interesting is you dive into this verse and you look at the original languages of the Greek. The phrase, let your conversation be, the Apostle Paul uses a Greek word there. And that, that Greek word, which is polytumai, pol I'm not even pronouncing it the perfect way, but the Greek word that is used there is, is it means to be a citizen, or better yet, to behave as a citizen. So when the Apostle Paul says, let your conversation or let your conduct, what he's saying is, as citizens, Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, if we go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, this is the only other place where the Apostle Paul uses this word. In Philippians 3.20, Paul tells the church at Philippi, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So essentially what Paul is saying at the beginning of verse 27 is this. Just one thing. As citizens... Of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. As Paul begins this challenge to the church, he begins by reminding them where their citizenship is, by reminding them who they represent. The Apostle Paul says, You know, you may be Roman citizens, but even more so, above all, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you are a citizen of the kingdom of righteousness. The kingdom of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness, speaking of Jesus, and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Listen, when you are born again, when you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you have been bought with a price. And the Apostle Paul says, when you have been bought with that price, above all, don't forget where home is. Your allegiance is to Christ, your devotion to the gospel. So therefore, as citizens of heaven, represent your homeland. Live lives worthy of the gospel. Gospel living flows from our identity as heavenly citizens. Basically, what the Apostle Paul is saying to these Christians, to his friends at Philippi, is, is this. He is saying, if you're going to say that you are a Christian, act like it. Let your walk match your talk. Listen, the gospel is about love, therefore we should be known for our love. The gospel is about justice, therefore we should be justice-seeking people. The gospel is about life, therefore we should be known for our joy and our relationships, for the, for the love in our communities that we have. The gospel is about humility, therefore we should be humble people gladly serving one another. And as we see this phrase, living your life worthy of the gospel, this encompasses many different areas. There's a lot of different ways you can go with this, but what I want to do is stick to what the text says. And so through the next three verses, I want us to see three ways that the Apostle Paul exhorts the Philippian church to live as citizens of heaven, walking worthy of the gospel. If you look at the back half of verse 27 with me, the first thing that the Apostle Paul says is that citizens of heaven are united in purpose. 
Citizens of heaven are united in purpose. Look at the back half of verse 27. The apostle Paul says, whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. I may hear of your life. Of what is going on there in Philippi? And this is what the apostle Paul wants to hear. That you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. A visitor went to a mental hospital, and when he was in this mental hospital, there was only three guards for hundreds of mentally insane inmates. And this visitor looks at his guy and he says, aren't you guys scared that they will overpower you and escape? And the guy looks at him and says, no, lunatics never unite. Unity is really the driving force behind Paul's exhortation here in Philippians chapter 1. It's a sad reality that oftentimes churches are known for our divisions. Churches are known as disunified. We're known more for what we're against than what we're for. All we do is fight one another. And the truth is, though, that this is not a new phenomenon, but this was going on even at the inception of the church. When you read the Apostle Paul's letters that he wrote to the church at Ephesus, the church at Corinth, the church at Galatia, even to the church at Philippi, division was one of the main issues that he dealt with. In Philippians chapter 4, it's, it's interesting because the Philippian church, as Paul wrote this letter, it's, it's some called a love letter. It's a letter that is thanking them for their partnership. It's praising them for what they've done. That This is a church that is on mission, yet Paul still takes the time to point out one thing that's going on in their church. In Philippians 4 chapter 2, Paul talks about two women. And he says that there's, there's two women that are having a division, that are fighting one another. And he says, he, he pleads with them. He says, I plead with Judea, and I plead with sentence to be of the same mind in the Lord. In urging the church to be united in purpose, Paul then gives them two commands. The first command we see is to stand fast in one spirit. Stand fast in one spirit. Two, stand fast is military imagery. The Apostle Paul often used military terminology to describe the Christian faith. The, to stand fast means to hold one's ground. It means to maintain a position. To stand fast is the idea that as an army is advancing on you, you are standing at the gates ready to withstand the attacks of the advancing army. You're never going to leave your post, but you're standing there defending, not giving up any ground. And just as military stand fast, the church must manifest that same readiness, that, that same identity of standing fast in one spirit. Listen, Christians are always under attack individually and as a community. To live as a Christian is to live with a target on your back, to, to live with people constantly opposing you, constantly looking for you to slip off, to mess up, to, for some way or another, be able to say that the life that you live is not real. It's not true. They're, they're looking for ways to discredit Jesus, to discredit your faith. And the way that Paul tells us that the church stands fast, the way that we defend the faith of the gospel is together, united in our one commonality, and that is Christ. You know, as I think of this image in my head, I'm reminded of the game we used to play as children, you know, called Red Rover. 
I don't know if any of you ever played that game, but when you play Red Rover, there's a there's a person that's, that's standing a couple of feet out and everybody else links arms together. And the goal of the game is to not let the advancing, the running person get through your chain link of arms. And you know, usually if there's just one or two people, it's pretty easy to get through those people's arms when you're running full speed. But the more people you get linking arms, the more people you have united, the stronger your defense is. And it's the exact same for the church. Paul challenges this church to stand firm, to stand their ground and following God. Don't retreat. Don't turn away from the Lord. Don't turn away from the truths of Scripture. Don't turn away from the exclusivity of the gospel. Amen. You know, the sad reality is that the church, especially in America, is losing the war to culture. It's losing the war to the world around us. Rather than the church influencing those around us, those that are around us are influencing the church. We navigate life as Christians, walking on cultural eggshells, worried that if we say the wrong thing or if we do the wrong thing, that we're going to be labeled as bigots, that, that, that we're going to be looked at as intolerant. Listen, we've abandoned biblical truth for tolerance. We've pacified the gospel in order to not make anybody feel bad, to, 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 to bring good emotions to people. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. You know, but the truth is that the gospel is offensive. Listen, it's the gospel that tells you that you are a sinner. It's the gospel that tells you that there is none righteous. It's the gospel that tells you that because of your sin, that you are worthy of condemnation, that you are worthy of separation from God, worthy of hell. That is an offensive message. Not only is the gospel offensive, but scripture is offensive. Listen, scripture goes against the tides of culture. Scripture is pulling us from our flesh. It's pulling us from what may be cool to a life that is righteous, to be made into the image of Christ, to a life that is holy, and to a world that's watching holiness and righteousness is offensive. As citizens of heaven, we are called to stand firm, stand fast for truth, even when it's hard. And I do want to say this one thing, and that is that while the gospel is offensive, you don't have to be. You don't have to be offensive. Listen, we are told to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love. Don't waver from biblical truth, but also don't do it from a spirit that's nasty and a spirit that is condemning, but rather from a spirit that is urging those people to a relationship with Christ. I'm reminded of the story I read of a, it's probably a made up story, but still, of, of a church, and this church had a new pastor. And one guy was talking to a member of the church, and he was asking about the new pastor, and he said, you know, how do you like your new pastor? And the guy looks at him and he says, well, I kind of miss the old pastor. He says, why? What's going on? He says, well, the new pastor preaches about hell. The guy looks at him and he's like, well, did the old pastor not preach about hell? He says, no, 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 that's not it. But when the new pastor preaches about hell, it's almost as if he enjoys it. It's almost as if he finds happiness in knowing that people are condemned. 
But when the old pastor preached about hell, he preached about hell because he loved us. He preached about hell with a grieved heart. He preached about hell because he wanted us to come into that relationship with Christ. Listen, and that's what we need to do as we speak truth into culture, as we speak truth against those who stand against the words of Scripture, as we do it with love, we do it with a grieved heart, knowing what they're missing out on, knowing that the word of God is true and powerful and decided that we're going to stick with it no matter what anybody says. Not only do we unite in purpose by standing fast in one, in one spirit, but Paul then says that we unite in purpose with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. While standing fast is defense, it's that defensive line that is defending the faith. To strive is offense. To strive is to work together towards the same goal, towards the same purpose. And that purpose and that goal is the message of Christ that Christ may be known. In Jude 3, Jude has this same exhortation that for the faith of the gospel, he says, I, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Just as much as the Apostle Paul used war terminology, he also used athletic illustrations. Striving comes from the Greek word sunathleo, which is where we get the word athlete. So striving describes an athlete competing with extreme intensity. It's an athlete that is competing to win a victory in a physical competition. The Amplified Bible translates it this way. It says, to fight strenuously for the defense of the gospel. But while we are called to strive, notice the modifier on that word strive. We are called to strive together together for the faith of the gospel. Listen, I've said this a million times, and I'm going to say it a million times more. The Christian life is a team sport. In team sports, each person must do his or her part. Each person must pull their weight. Each person must work together in a team sport. You need the whole team to contribute. You need the whole team to work together in order to push towards that prize, in order to attain that goal that you have. And in the Christian life, we advance the gospel side by side. Listen, we don't do it alone. We do it together, working, contending, laboring together. A contemporary sport, you might think of football. In football, you have offensive linemen, and the offensive line, they block side by side. They push side by side together. They strive together for the same purpose, and that is to protect their quarterback. And so in the same way as Christians, we are called to stand and defend. We are also called to be like those offensive linemen and push the gospel forward, to work together, to strive together in advancing the gospel. Dio Moody said, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. Listen, as Christians living lives worthy of the gospel, as a church having a purpose worthy of the gospel, we have to 
unite. There must be unity. We need to unite in purpose with one spirit. The second thing we see is that citizens of heaven are fearless in the face of opposition. If you look at verse 28, the Apostle Paul says, and in nothing, nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them in every token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Listen, the Apostle Paul wrote these verses knowing firsthand of the opposition that comes with living a life for Christ. We've talked about it over the past few weeks, the sufferings the Apostle Paul dealt with, writing from a Roman prison, being in prison in Philippi. He knows that there are adversaries. And listen, when you live a life for Christ, there will be adversaries. There will be adversaries. You know, I've heard it said that if you never walk across the devil as you're living for the Lord, it's probably because you're walking step in step with him. Paul himself was imprisoned in Philippi. He urges the churches there from his imprisonment to not be afraid of those who oppose them. You look at that word terrified. This word terrified would have been used by Greek soldiers to, to, to explain or to, to um, describe horses which would be easily spooked. A, a horse that would be easily startled or scared would be described as terrified. And so Paul says, don't live like those horses that are easily spooked. Don't be easily startled. Don't be easily scared by the opposition. Don't be scared when the enemy comes against you. But rather have gospel courage. Have gospel boldness. Listen, courage is crucial to gospel living. Listen, the tactics of the enemy can be alarming. I'm not going to stand up here this morning and act like it's not, like it's not scary, like it doesn't, can't invoke fear into us when Satan and his demons, when they try to fight against us, there are scary times. We look at the lives of all of the apostles, the persecution they suffered. You look at the martyrs of our faith, the persecution they suffered, even continually to this day overseas as people live lives for Christ. They are threatened with death and with, with being beheaded, with, with being beaten and imprisoned. Listen, the tactics of the enemy can be alarming. But know that as Christians living on mission, you are going to be engaged in spiritual warfare. As a Christian that is living a life for Christ, there is going to be a spiritual battle that is constantly going on around you. But the important thing is when you're engaged in that spiritual warfare, when life seems to be beating you up, when it seems like there's enemies and there's opposition all around you, remember who the opposition truly is. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes to the church, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against one another, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly Places. Listen, when it seems like that person is against you, when it seems like there's constantly somebody that is opposing you, recognize that person is not your enemy. That person is made in the image of God. That, that person is somebody that Jesus Christ went to the cross 
and die for. Now, now, rather, they're being influenced by these schemes of evil. They're being influenced by Satan. They're being influenced by these, these principalities and these powers. And, and recognize that angels and demons and spiritual warfare are real. Listen, there is a battle that is constantly going on that we cannot see. And, but the thing is, we don't have to live in fear of the supernatural. In Thessalonians, Paul writes to the church there, he says, the Lord is faithful. And he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Listen, rather than being spooked and startled by the enemy, we can have boldness and courage in the face of opposition. The Apostle Paul says that when you are bold to the opposition, it is a sign of their destruction. A sign of their destruction. Listen, when you have boldness in Christ, remember the Bible says that when you are in Christ, that, that he is in you is greater than he that is in the world. So you can be bold in Christ rather than being fearful of opposition. You strike fear into demonic Activity. You strike fear into Satan and, and the schemes of the devil when, when you oppose them because it reminds them of their destruction to come. One commentator said this, he says, when once they have discovered that all their tricks do not have the least power to alarm you, will this not be a clear indication that they fight on behalf of a failing cause? Listen, when, when bullies realize they can't intimidate you, they move on. Not only is this a sign of their destruction, but Paul said it's a sign of your salvation. And the truth of the matter is that when we live in unity, when we stand courageously, when we are unafraid and humbly, lovingly before our opponents, it's a sign that the gospel is indeed true. And that, therefore, those who believe it are saved. You know, I can't think of anything more optimistic than the thought and the belief that Jesus could come as judge and king at any moment. Amen. At any moment, he could come as judge. He can come as king. Those evil oppositions that are opposing you, there is a day when, when Christ will have the final victory when death will be no more, when there will be no more opposition, there will be no need to be fearful. Listen, we are fighting a winning battle, not a losing one. We can be bold in the face of opposition. We can be bold in spiritual warfare because we know how the story ends. We know the outcome is going to be, even though these sufferings of this life may get the best of us, when all is done, when we live for Christ, we can say like Paul said that to live Christ and to die is gain. And then lastly, we see that citizens of heaven are joyful in suffering. Citizens of heaven are united in purpose. Citizens of heaven are bold against opposition, and citizens of heaven are joyful in suffering. Look at verse 29 to 30 with me. The Apostle Paul says, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me, 
and now here to be in me. Listen, we've already established that the Christian life is a battle. The Christian life is, is war. And with battle comes scars. I read a quote this week that I like to say, a Christian is like a tea bag. Not much good until it has gone through hot water. Listen, but in hot water, in those times of suffering and persecution and distraught and disturbed and discouragement, we can find joy knowing that we are suffering for Christ's sake. You know, the difference between suffering for Christ's sake and suffering for the world is that suffering for Christ's sake is purposeful. When you suffer for Christ's sake, God allows it for our good. He allows us to suffer for Christ's sake for his glory. Listen, I want to remind you this morning that contrary to popular teachings, that being a Christian does not promise you health, wealth, and prosperity. That being a Christian does not mean that your account is going to be full, that you're going to get the job, that everything's going to be peaches and cream. But rather, there is one promise that the Bible gives about being a Christian, and that promise is that you will suffer. 2 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, he says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. Not only will you suffer, but it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, that suffering is granted on behalf of Christ. It's, it's given graciously. In other words, suffering is a gift from Christ. You know, you hear that, it's, you know, that's a gift. I don't want nothing to do with it, right? It's a gift that we'd rather return, keep the seat, and say, you know, Lord, I appreciate it, but you can keep that, right? <laughs> Listen, but God is sovereign over when he gives faith and when he gives suffering. Paul says that there's the gift of suffering and there's the gift of faith. Amen. You know, and as we look at this, and I'm challenged, you know, as I see suffering as a gift, am I looking at it in my own life that way? Do I see suffering for the gospel as a blessing? When someone belittles me for my faith, do I consider it a gift? When I suffer persecution in maybe even a more brutal way, amid my affliction, do I re realize and recognize that this is a gift from God? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Jesus himself says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, earlier we sang the song, the goodness of God and how God is faithful and how his goodness chases after us. But the truth is, a lot of times as we navigate through life, oftentimes we believe that God's goodness ends when hardship begins. When we go through a tough time, when we face opposition and things aren't going well, all of a sudden God is no longer good. And Paul is reminding the church at Philippi that when they face this persecution, when they face this suffering, when things don't go the way that they think it should, when they experience this treatment, 
for Jesus' name, that it's not because God has abandoned them, Amen. but rather that they are blessed and that we are blessed when we suffering. Amen. Listen, it's in suffering that you turn to God. It's in suffering that you encounter God. The greater the pain, the closer God comes. The closer God is, the more joy he offers. You can explain to a child all of the medical reasons that there is that they may need to get a shot. But as soon as that doctor pulls out that needle and gets ready to plunge it, the child runs to mommy. Comfort comes not in always knowing the reason why, but comfort comes in the comforter. Suffering takes your eyes off the temporary, it places it on that which is eternal. Listen, suffering is a difficult gift to receive, but it's one that we place it at the feet of Jesus will yield great fruit. And before you think that your sufferings are unbearable, before you think that your sufferings are unfair, I want to remind you of the sufferings of our Lord. God in humanity lived a perfect and sinless life, yet was brutally tortured, was hung high, was stretched wide, was pierced in his side, had thorns on his head, had blood on his brow, was nailed to a cross. Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, as he speaks about the coming crucifixion of the Lord, he says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened out his mouth. Listen, Isaiah, speaking of the suffering of our Lord, says that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers, yet remained silent. Listen, the next time you find yourself complaining about the suffering you're going through, I want you just to remember what Christ did for you on Calvary. Amen. Listen, Christ died of death that we deserve so that we can have a life that he had earned, and that is life, eternal life, knowing that we can be brought into a relationship with God. Once when we were separated because of our sins, Christ went to the cross and took all of our sins upon himself so that if we call upon him, we will be saved. As I look at verses 27 through 30, the one thing that just kind of sticks out to me that I am continually reminded of as we go through the book of Philippians is that the Christian faith is not passive. Listen, the Christian faith is not a playground. It's not somewhere where we go just to have fun and meet people and, you know, things are going to be all gravy and good, but 
rather the Christian faith, when you are following the Lord, when you are living a life that is holy, when you are standing fast and striving together, it's a battleground. What sort of images come to your mind when you think of a Christian? Do you think of someone who spends all day in a library? Do you think of somebody who's tucked away maybe by themselves like a monk in a, in a monastery? Do you think of a celebrity? When you think of a Christian, what comes to your mind? And then compare it to what Paul thinks about. When Paul thinks about Christians, he thinks of soldiers of the king and determined athletes. Perhaps, I'm sure most in here have heard about or read about or even watched about the famous battle of Thermopylae, Therm Thermopylae <laughs> in 480 BC, an alliance of Greek city-states led by King Leonidas, might ring the bell now, of Sparta fought against the mighty Persian army. The battle that took place at this pass of Thermopylae in central Greece and Leonidas and, Spart and the Spartans were vastly outnumbered, but the Greeks held back the Persians for three days in one of history's most famous last stands. A small force led by King Leonidas, including his group of 300 Spartans, blocked the only road to which the massive army of Persia's Xerxes the Great could pass. Likewise, the Philippian congregation may have felt vastly outnumbered, but they were called to stand courageously against hostile forces. And they were to do this together under the kingship of Jesus, who has already won the ultimate battle. But listen, church, I just want to remind us this morning that we ought to live lives worthy of the gospel. We ought to live lives as citizens of heaven. And as we saw this morning, the Apostle Paul says that one way to do so is by remaining united in purpose, standing fearlessly against our opposition, and seeing our suffering as a gift from God. Every head bowed, eyes closed.